Good evening, and welcome back to our study of First Corinthians. How about this weather, huh? Uh, this is what we've been waiting for for months and months. I hope it lasts. Uh, and thank God for the rain we got, praying for those who got more than they actually needed south of us. But uh, it's been good. It's been good to see the temperatures drop and to hear that rain at night. Made me sleep well. I don't know about you. Uh, but we are in 1 Corinthians 10 tonight. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13, and let me just start with this. There is There are a lot of things that Christians say that they assume are in the Bible that aren't really, and one of them is the saying, well, God will never give me more than I can handle. I, will, I hear Christians say that often. You know, the Bible says, God will never give me more than I can handle. And I don't always do this, but when I feel it's appropriate, I'll, I'll stop and say, where does it actually say that? In the Bible. Uh, maybe you've said that before. Maybe you've believed it's in Scripture, but it's actually not. The truth is the opposite. God often gives us more than we can handle. And that sounds like bad news, but it's actually good news. And we're going to look at why, and we're going to look at the Scripture that I think people misinterpret to mean that God won't give us more than we can handle, and what it actually means. But first, let's start with kind of a review, because we're right in the middle of an extended argument that Paul is making to the church at Corinth. Remember, the first Corinthians was a letter to a real church in response to real questions that they had asked him. And we can infer, we don't have the letter the Corinthians wrote to Paul, so we can infer from the things he says what their letter said, what they were asking. So if you have your Bible, make sure and be at chapter 10, verse 1, and follow along with me. But here's your review. So this all started, this section all started in chapter 8 with the Corinthians asking, Paul, what do we do about meat that's sacrificed to idols? It was They lived in a mostly pagan city, and so they knew that if they went to the marketplace and bought some beef or some chicken or a lamb, most likely it was going to be meat that had previously been sacrificed in the pagan temples. And so there was a question of, should we become vegetarians? And there were some Christians who said, hey, this is ridiculous. We're free in Christ. And they would go and they would eat whatever they wanted. In fact, they would go to the, to the village, uh, to the town festivals that were held in pagan temples. And they would eat and drink there uh, as a way of, of you know, getting to know their pagan neighbors and witnessing to them. And on the other end of the spectrum were Christians who said, no, we're going to never eat meat because I don't want to pay. I don't want to take the chance that I'm going to eat something that was sacrificed to Zeus or Apollo or or, uh, you know, Hermes or whoever you want to name. And, and that would be abominable in the sight of God. And so what do we do about that? So Paul's still talking about this. It's taking him three chapters to answer his question, which sort of makes you think, man, don't ever ask Paul a question. But honestly, it's Paul using the questions of the Corinthians to say, you're really asking the wrong question. So what did Paul say? So far, he has said, first of all, Christians are free from legalism. In his heart, Paul sides with the people who say, what difference does it make whether this meat was sacrificed to Zeus or not? Because Zeus doesn't even exist. That has no spiritual power, uh, so I can eat whatever I want and it's not going to hurt me. Paul says Christians are free from legalism. Once we're in Jesus, we don't live by these arbitrary rules. We don't live by, oh, you're a good Christian if you're a woman and you dress this way but not this way, uh, or if you say these words but not these words, or if you uh, drink this drink but not that one, eat this food but not that one. That's not what Christianity is about. We're free. 
we can walk and live in freedom. And that just means that we don't have to always every day ask ourselves the question, oh my goodness, have I gone too far? Have I messed up? Have I have I offended the Lord? Because we know we have the Holy Spirit in us. If we've offended the Lord, he'll let us know. He'll guide us into the truth. So we're free, but he also says, but don't use your freedom as a way to hurt your brother. You should always put the other people ahead of yourself. That's that's the whole principle of love your neighbor. Put your brother ahead of yourself. Put your sister ahead of yourself, even if sometimes it costs you some of your freedom. And I gave the example of you're a Christian teenager. Uh, you and your friends like to wear your baseball caps all the time, but you recognize there are older adults in the church that were brought up to believe that you're just not respectful toward God if you wear a hat in the church of Jesus Christ. And so in order not to offend them, not to cause division in the body of Christ, you take off your hat. Not because God's going to be angry if you have a hat on, not because God's going to strike you with a lightning bolt, but because you love your brother more than you love yourself. Uh, and then Paul in chapter 9 says, so let me show you how this works. And he gives an example from his own life. He says, I'm free. I can, I can, I am entitled, in fact, to be able to be paid for my preaching. I've planted churches all across the Mediterranean world, and I've worked hard, and I deserve to be paid for that. And the Bible says I should be paid for that, but I give up my right to pay. I give up my right to have a wife. I give up my right to all kinds of things because I don't want anything to get in the way of the gospel. Remember, Paul says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew. To the Greeks, I became like a Greek. To those who were weak, I became like those who were weak because I, I just want to win as many pos as possible to salvation by all possible means. I want to win people to salvation. And that's Paul's uh, philosophy of ministry, and it should be ours as well. You, you give up whatever you have to do to advance the cause of Christ. That's what matters most. And then he ends chapter 9 by saying life is like a race. In a race, lots of runners run, but you're not worried about just finishing. You're not worried about getting the participation ribbon or the t-shirt that comes with running the race. If you really want to live the cause of Christ, then you run in such a way that you're trying to win doesn't mean you're in competition with others, but you're in competition with yourself. You want to be the best you can be because Christ is in the process of making you into something different than what you were when he found you. So that takes, just like a race, it takes determination. It takes sacrifice. It, it takes willingness to push through pain and to not think about yourself, uh, but to only think of the goal. So that's where we are so far. All of that comes from a question, is it okay to eat meat, meat sacrificed to idols? Now in chapter 10, he, he continues that argument. He says, uh, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. This is verse 1 of chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. By the way, whenever Paul says that, and he says that periodically in his writings in Romans and 1 Thessalonians, or I do not want you to be ignorant is another way he says it. That's Paul's way of saying, listen up, this is important. I've got something I need to tell you that you need to know. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So Paul is reminding them of the story that is found in the Exodus, a story that to Jews would be as every bit as familiar and even more so to them as the Easter story is to us. 
the, the Exodus story to the Jews was a combination of the story of their spiritual salvation and their national founding. So it's sort of like uh, combining Christmas, Easter, and the 4th of July. Uh, they knew this story. Now, there were a lot of Gentile Christians in Corinth, but Paul assumes that by now they've heard the story of the Exodus. They've been discipled, so they know these stories too. And he, what he's saying, he, he uses a lot of uh, symbolic language. So let me kind of break it down for you. He says that our, our fathers were under the cloud. Uh, in the Exodus story, there was a pillar of cloud that guided the Israelites. Everywhere they went, they followed that cloud. And so Paul said they were being guided by God. They, were, they walked through the sea. That's the story of their ultimate salvation. When, when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea and then the, the Egyptian army was wiped out by those same waters, that was God's salvation of Israel. They were saved from slavery. They were saved from death. Uh, and then it says he, they were baptized into Moses. This is really uh, a phrase that's no, no, used nowhere else in the Bible or anywhere else in literature. It's kind of hard to understand what Paul's talking about. Here's what I think he's saying. When you and I get baptized, what are we doing? We're identifying ourselves with Christ. We're saying, I'm only saved because Jesus died for me. Just as Jesus died and was buried and rose again the third day, so through his death and resurrection, the old me is buried and is resurrected into a brand new person. And someday when my physical body is dead, I know that I will rise again too. It's a beautiful thing, but it's, it's an identification with Jesus, which is why it needs to be done publicly. I think what Paul is saying is the Israelites identified with Moses. They were baptized into Moses means they had a choice. They could have said, oh, here comes the Egyptian army. I'm going to run back there and surrender to them myself. I'm done with you fellow Jews. You're crazy. I'm going to go and go back to slavery. But the ones who stuck with Moses survived. In fact, all through the Exodus story, whenever a group of Israelites would break away and say, okay, we're, we're forming our own party and we want to do our own thing, they always ended up dead. But those who stuck with Moses, those who identified with Moses, survived. So that's what Paul's talking about. They were baptized into Moses. It's talking about their salvation. Uh, and then it says they ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. If you know the Exodus story, you know the Jews, through the course of their 40-year Exodus, they ate only one thing. Well, they ate only what was provided them by God. They're in the desert. There was no food. So God gave them manna from heaven, this, this spiritual bread. He also at times gave them meat. Uh, and when they were thirsty, sometimes they would get water from supernatural sources, like Moses would strike a rock with his staff and water would pour out of this dry rock in the middle of the desert. They ate and drank spiritual food, and that's a symbol of grace. They didn't earn it. They didn't plant it. They didn't hunt it down. They didn't dig up the well. God just provided for them in their time of need. It's a symbol of grace. And then he says, in all of that, the rock was Christ. And this has really confused a lot of interpreters before, but I think it's pretty simple what Paul is saying. He's saying all of this stuff, the manna, the water, the, the cloud, the walking through the Red Sea, the baptism into Moses, all of it pointed to Jesus. Yes, it's a true story. Yes, all these things really happened, but God allowed these things to happen because he wanted us to see this is the way I operate. And someday I'm going to give you a greater exodus, a greater Red Sea experience, a greater manna in the desert. I'm going to give you what you've always needed, your ultimate salvation. The rock was Christ. So he's saying these people were saved. But, and then verse 5 comes and he says, but even though they were all saved by him, not all of them made it to the promised land. In fact, 
quick Bible trivia question. Of the Israelites who escaped Egypt, how many, how many finally made it into the promised land? Do you know? The answer is two. Only two out of hundreds of thousands of people. Not even Moses. Only Joshua and only Caleb. And that's a lesson to us. It's not saying, let me, let me be clear about this. It's not saying, well, most people who get baptized as Christians are not going to make it to heaven. This is, not about, uh, this is not about whether you go to heaven or not. This is about what he referred to back in the, at the end of chapter 9 as being disqualified. Paul, remember, says, I beat my body, I make it my slave, so that I, at the end I will not be disqualified. What he was talking about, as I said last time, was I don't want to come to a point where I do something that disgraces my Lord, that harms the, the people I love and who love me back, that, that causes me to forfeit my abundant life in this world, that, that means that I can no longer plant churches and preach the gospel and do what God's called me to do. I don't want to lose my ministry. I don't want to lose what he's given me. So that's what he's talking about. He's talking about stumbling. He's talking about uh, disqualification, not losing your salvation, which I don't think according to Scripture, is possible. So, to sum up verses 1 through 5, the Exodus story tells us it's possible to be saved in a miraculous way and go on to do terrible things and disgrace yourself and hurt others and, and wound the Holy Spirit. So in verse 6, he says, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So what Paul's going to do in this little small section is he's going to refer to four specific incidents in the Exodus story that show how the, the Israelites stumbled. And the first one he refers to is the, the whole incident of the golden calf in Exodus 32. Remember, Moses went up onto the mountain, Mount Sinai, to get the Ten Commandments. And while he was up there, the people lost their heart, you might say, and went to Aaron and said, well, we don't know what happened to Moses. We're stuck out here in the desert. We don't trust you to lead us. Uh, why don't you make us new gods? Because we need something to guide us and protect us and get us out of this fix. I mean, it's, it's amazing to us that they would lose heart so quickly. Aaron did it. Moses came down and the wrath of God fell upon the Israelites. So this, what this is saying is it's possible for us as saved believers in Jesus to give in to idolatry. I don't know any Christians that have golden calves in their house that they offer sacrifices to. I don't even know any Christians that have statues that they believe possess uh, spiritual power that they, that they bow down to or pray to. I, I don't think that's necessarily the end of what idolatry is. Idolatry is whenever we find purpose and meaning and security and identity uh, in, in something other than God. When there's something other than God that we think we need in order to live a full and complete life, that's idolatry. So idolatry is when we say to God, okay, Jesus, thank you for saving my soul, but if, I don't, if that person doesn't love me, if that person doesn't become my wife and stay with me, then, I, then life isn't worth living. That's idolatry. Uh, Jesus, thank you for saving my soul, but if I can't live a life that's materially successful, uh, where others recognize my, my safety, uh, my, uh, I'm sorry, my success and my wealth, and, and I have a certain lifestyle, if I can't have that lifestyle and that success, then life isn't worth living. That's, that's making an idol out of success and out of money. Um, or if I say, thank you, Jesus, I'm glad you saved my soul, but 
for my time on earth, I want you to make sure that my political party is always in charge. Because if those other guys are in charge, then life here is not going to be worth living. I don't think you can protect me from those people. I don't think you can give me a meaningful life if those people are in charge. That makes politics your true God. See, there's, it's possible to have idolatry just like the Israelites. And, and in so doing, we miss out on the abundant life God's promised us and we bring disgrace to his cause. And then the, the next example in verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Now, this is talking about an incident from Numbers 25 that the Bible will refer to later as the Baal of Peor. Uh, This is an incident where the Moabites, you remember the Moabites were the ones who hired Balaam to curse Israel, and that's a real humorous story to us because God confounds Balaam, talks to him through a donkey. Balaam ends up uh, blessing the Israelites instead of cursing them. Well, in the end, Balaam and the Moabites got the last laugh because rather than cursing Israel, they came up with a scheme. Their worship of the false god Baal consisted of virgins in the temple who would practice this uh, these sexual rituals with men. You know, you can imagine that's a religion that men would make up where you go to a temple and have sex with a virgin and it's considered a sacrifice before your god. And somehow they invited the Israelites. Hey, come to a party. You know, we couldn't curse you. We ended up blessing you. So let's celebrate. We've got wine. We've got food. Let's eat and drink. And then they said, okay, now that you've eaten and drink and, and enjoyed your wine, why don't you come in to our temple and enjoy worship with us? Well, the Israelite men were too lacking in self-control to say no to that. And so sexual immorality caused incredible pain in the nation of Israel. Many people died. The third example, verse 9, he says, We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. And that story is found in Numbers 21. And that's an incident where all the Israelites did was grumble. All they did was gripe and complain. They just said, hey, we've had it with eating manna. We're tired of waiting for the next rock to spit out water for us. It was better for us in Egypt. I'm ready for some good food and drink. And God sent snakes among them. Man, that should humble us, because how often do we grumble and complain? It's, it's a sign that, that can, that's a road that leads us to destruction if we're not careful. And then finally, in verse 10, he says, Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. And this is the one out of the four examples that scholars debate the most, which is what is what specific incident is Paul talking about. Most agree he's talking about Numbers 14, the, the story of Israel's ultimate failure at a place called Kadesh Barnea. And you probably remember the story, the 12 spies. I mean, they were on the edge of the promised land. They, they'd been in the desert for just weeks, and they sent 12 spies into the promised land to see how it was. They came back. Ten out of the 12 said, we can't possibly conquer this land. Those people are huge. And two of the 12, Joshua and Caleb, said, no, 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 God is bigger than they are. Let's trust him. Let's cross this Jordan and do what he said. But they were overruled. The people grumbled. They complained. They said, why did you take us all this way just to have us stomped and eaten alive by these gigantic Canaanites? Um, And that's the reason why they wandered for 40 years. That's the reason why only Joshua and Caleb ultimately made it into the promised land. Now, here's the interesting thing. All four of these examples in some way, have to do with eating and drinking, which is the, the, I think that's part of why Paul chose those four examples, because the 
presenting problem, the presenting issue in Corinth is what should we be able to eat and drink as Christians? Is it okay for us to eat and drink things that some members of our congregation think are inappropriate? Ultimately, though, all of these are examples of our human desires going beyond the plan of God. And that's what we need to be careful of. We understand, I hope, that human desire is not bad in and of itself. If you didn't desire food, you'd never eat and you'd starve to death. If you didn't desire water, you'd never drink and you would die of dehydration. If you never desired the opposite sex, human beings would never get married and the human race would cease to exist. So human desire is a good thing, but when we desire things that are not within the plan of God for us, rather than making excuses or rationalizations, we need to understand that Ultimately, when you grab something that's outside God's plan for you, you can get away with it for a while. It can even bring you great pleasure for a brief while, but ultimately it will destroy you. That's the warning Paul is making, and it couldn't be more graphic than in giving us those four examples. Because in all four examples, not only did it delay and almost destroy the plan of God, nothing can ultimately destroy God's plan, but it resulted in human death in all four situations, in all four examples. So then Paul goes on in verse 11 and says, Now these things happened to them as an example, an example to us, he's saying. But they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Now verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 10 that I just read is a verse that is just, I mean, for years it's been like an arrow in my heart. Every time I read it, it's like God slapping me in the face and saying, Wake up, buddy because you could stumble too. And maybe it's because as a pastor, I, I see so many examples of men of God, genuine men of God, who've had fruitful and amazing ministries that God has used in incredible ways that have blessed and benefited me. And then they stumble and they lose everything. They don't lose their salvation. Often they lose their families. Always they lose their ministries. They cause untold pain, disgrace to the cause of Christ. And every time I hear one of those stories, I remember this verse, and it's God saying, that could be you. You're not a better man than they are. You're not more impervious to sin than they are. So take heed if you think you stand, because you could fall also. But it's not a verse just for pastors and preachers. It's a verse for all of us. Paul's writing this to ordinary Corinthians, not prophets, apostles, teachers, missionaries. So... I think here's a way to look at it. Sometimes we as Christians act like we're sons and daughters of a rich man who think we can get away with anything. Oh, you know, the the highway patrolman pulls us over and we've got we've got beer and weed in our car and we were driving 120 miles an hour and he pulls us over and comes to the comes to the driver's side window and we say, uh, don't worry about it. Let me tell you who my daddy is. Well, maybe that works in the world sometimes. It doesn't work in the spiritual world. God is not going to rescue you from the consequences of your foolish choices. Is there forgiveness? Always. Doesn't mean the consequences go away. Consequences are real. And whereas some people think that the Bible says God won't give you more than you can handle, this verse proves the opposite is true. This is God saying, instead of saying, hey, don't worry, I have made you strong enough for every test. This is God saying, watch out because there's plenty of things coming your way that are too big for you to handle. Watch out because you too could fall. And we need to take that 
warning seriously. We can't handle this world and the temptations in it. We can't handle our flesh and the many ways that you and I still aren't enough like Jesus. We can't handle the devil who's smarter and, and stronger and craftier than us. We need God's grace every day. And that brings us to verse 13. And here's the one that's misinterpreted. But it's such a great promise. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. See, that verse doesn't say God's never going to give you anything you can't handle. It's saying God's never going to give you anything that you cannot overcome if you stick by him. He will give you a way out so that you can overcome it, so that you can endure it, but only if you stick by him. See, there's two, two truths in this verse. One is, there's no more excuses for us as Christians. Never again can we as Christians plead uh, the spiritual version of, well, temporary insanity. I, I just couldn't help it. I lost control. I sort of blacked out. I did what I shouldn't have done, but I wasn't really myself. That's no excuse. Not before the God of heaven. Because he's told us right here, there will always be a way out. And, and then the second thing is, the second thing, second truth is that God is on our side. God's not up there saying, okay, here comes another test. Let's see how Jeff does with this one. No, he's rooting for me to succeed. See, when I went to college, and as a freshman and sophomore, some of my classes at U of H were in these big, vast auditoriums with four and 500 students. And that's true if you, if you went to a large public college. And you were probably told like I was, those, those are weed out classes. The, you take those in your first two years because the professor and the, the whole university system is trying to weed out people who aren't serious about their studies. So if you go to that class with 500 students and you realize, hey, I could skip class every day and nobody's going to call me on it. Nobody's even going to miss me. And then the end of the semester comes and you've got an F. And pretty soon your parents are outside your dorm room with a moving truck to move you back home. That's a weed out class. That's not the way God operates. God is not throwing things at us, trying to weed out the, the good people from the bad. He's not trying to see who's the strongest. So, okay, I'll let these ones into my kingdom and the ones who didn't quite make it won't make it. He's rooting for us. He is helping us. He is hoping for us to succeed because every time we pass a test, we get stronger. Every time we pass a test, we grow in the grace of God, and we are, become more of a blessing to others. So let me end this rather dire section of Scripture that hopefully gave you a good wake-up call. Take heed if you think you stand, lest you fall. Let me end it with an encouraging note, and that is, what victories are you going to win tomorrow? Because there's literally nothing this world throws at you that God has not given you a way to succeed. See, it's not true that God won't give you anything you can't handle. God will enable you to overcome everything this world throws at you if you stick by him. So I ask again, what victories are you going to win tomorrow? Pray right now. As soon as we're done with this, pray right now. God, get me ready. Prepare me for the tests that tomorrow will bring. And I rejoice in advance at the victory that I will enjoy with you. Boy, it's good to serve a Savior like Jesus, isn't it? I look forward to seeing you this weekend, either in person or online. Let's keep enjoying this good weather, but most of all, let's, let's enjoy the Savior who loves us. God bless you. Have a great week.